Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, we made it. Hebrews chapter 13, the last five verses, six verses. Yeah, I hope, I hope it's been a, a blessing to you. We've spent um, eight months, roughly about eight months, in the book of Hebrews. Um, and so, uh, as I said, after the first year, we're going to be looking, if you want to read ahead, uh, we're going to do some things over Christmas, probably some Advent things. But um, here, the, the first year, we're going to be looking at the, what we call the pastoral epistles, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, and so we'll be moving through those. Um, and so we're going to, uh, you know, obviously Timothy was referenced here in, obviously, in the text uh, that Rob just read. And so, but, but here we are, right, at the end. And so I'm not going to recap all that we've kind of covered over these last eight months, but basically we've, we've seen that this writer is who's writing to these, these Hebrews that are Christians, and he's, he's told them, you know, who God is, and he's accessed all, he's reminded them of their ancestors and how they lived in the wilderness and, and their obedience and sometimes disobedience, sometimes their faithfulness, and, and he's done all of that. Over the last three weeks, we've looked at basically saying, okay, what do we do with all that knowledge of who God is? We have to live it out. And so here in 13, he's been talking about how we live that out, how we apply those things to our life in such a way that it brings glory to God and it, it, we live it out. So obviously in 13, it's gotten a lot more personal. Now he's, he's speaking directly to us. And, he's, and now as he closes, though, um, there's this thing, it's called a benediction. It's, it's a prayer for these people. He's going to pray now for the church that he's been writing to and, 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 and kind of uh, encouraging with, with doctrine, with, with the truth of who God is and who Christ is and all of, the, all of that, and then telling them how they need to live. And now he's going to pray over them here in the end. Very personal. And then obviously he has some, some personal things right here at the very end, uh, and we're going to talk about that a little bit too. But, but the main thrust of our conversation today, the message, is going to be on, on two verses, verses 20 and 21, which is this prayer or benediction. I don't know if you ever, that word is maybe not a word you hear very often, but if you grew up in a more, um, uh, maybe a more traditional church, and, and not that churches don't do it that are not traditional, in fact, I would love to start doing it at some point, but... but at the end of my Lutheran service, when we were growing up, the pastor would have a benediction. He would raise his hand and he would pray over the congregation. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, and we probably need to institute it at some level. Um, and so today, we're going to see that he does this. Obviously, in a text, he's not there with them. He's writing to them. But that's really what he's doing. He's praying over them. Now, the interesting thing that I think you're going to see here, and I hope that I'll be able to, to rightly explain is that this prayer is is not what you would think at least in my mind where my mind goes when we think about praying for someone we're we're praying you know that your church will grow that that there will be peace in your church um that god will raise up leaders or or they'll raise up people in ministry that he'll heal the sick and that's all good prayer don't get me wrong that's good stuff but that's not at all what this guy prays whoever the author is these two verses talk almost nothing about anybody in the church. The prayer specifically is reminding them who God is. That's the prayer. The prayer is that you will know who God is and you will understand what he has done. That's the prayer. It's, it, this prayer is one of remembering. 
as I mentioned kind of during the announcements, um, when I was speaking to this individual yesterday that was struggling yesterday morning, and, and, and that was really my, my thrust of my conversation was to remind them of the truths of who they, they've already professed Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm just here to remind them of those truths. Now, yes, I'm going to pray for that particular need in their life, but I don't know that that particular need is going to be met by God, do I? God doesn't heal every sickness, not in this life. God does not take away every challenge, every financial challenge, every marital challenge. He does not heal everything. And so why is that, why is that relevant? Because we need to be reminded of who God is and what his plan is and what he's done for us. And that as a professed believer, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and so we can rejoice in all things. Now, we should pray for those other things. Notice that even there in, in Philippians where we talked about, he says, yes, make your request known to me with thanksgiving. You may not get it. Make it known to me. I'll, I'll decide if, that's, if it's what I want for you, if that's best for you, if this is what my will is for you. I'll do that. But the primary thing is that we can rejoice because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so here, the author, when he prays for the church, that, I believe, is what he's doing. He's reminding them of who God is. Because that is going to be the most important thing that he could pray for them. Because if they can remember who God is and what he has done, that will give them a peace that transcends all understanding. Right? That's what I hope you can get out of this. So, what's the big idea for you this morning? It's all about God. I don't know if you've realized that, but this is not about us. Right? It's, it's all about God. Yes, we are, we are the, um, we're the, we're the people in the story that God is using and, and loving and, and working through to bring about his plan. But ultimately, Scripture says this is all about him, right? He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the eternal God. He's the one that's worthy of glory. It's all about him. And so he's unfolding this. And so really what the author is going to do is he's, he's really isn't that what he's done. He says, this is who God is. We talked about the first few chapters. He's, he's greater than Moses, all these things. And then he takes them all the way through these things. Our worship is to him. Your, your ancestors did not worship. They didn't trust him. Then he says the hall of faith. Why were those people counted faithful? Because they loved God. They understood it was all about him. They put their trust in him, right? Today is, is, is the Western church. Many of us in the Western church have turned our prayer life into me. Like, what, what is it for me? Obviously, the whole prosperity movement is, is on steroids that direction, right? And that's so not biblical, right? We come and we say, it's all about you. When you came this morning to here, didn't you come? And I've said this, when you got out of bed and you're thinking about, I'm going to come, I'm going to go to church, and are you coming to get something? Now, granted, you, we, yes, we hope that there's, there's good fellowship and there's good teaching and, and, you know, there's some Turkish coffee, if you like coffee, right? Um, or are you coming because you can't wait to get with the believers, the saints, and to lift your voices and to praise God and thank him for who he is. Now, you can do that at home, but corporately, there's something unique about that. God tells us to gather, right? We looked at it in Hebrews. Do not give up the forsaken of gathering together, as some of you are in the habit of doing. There's, there's this thing about gathering together, and why? Because what are we doing when we do that? We're reminding each other who he is. But if we come with a very self-centered consumerism, we're not reminding everybody else who he is. We're reminding that God is here for us to give us things. 
So let's come to the altar and get, right? And that's not, that's not the biblical approach here. That's not what the scripture teaches us. It's all about him. So let's dive in. Now we're going to do something a little different. Um, normally I would just work through the passage one verse at a time. Um, and I'm going to kind of do that, but I'm going to rearrange the verses a little bit. Because I want to spend most of my time camping out on verses 20 and 21. And, and those are the first, verse, those first verses. And so we're going to skip those two for a second. And we're going to jump right to verse 22, uh, and 20, well, like 22 through 25. Right? So how does he, and this is just kind of the, he's wrapping up his letter here. He prays for them. And then he has some final words uh, as he closes out his letter. And so we're going to look at those first. Verse 22, it says, I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. Well, it's a good thing he wrote briefly. We'd still be in Hebrews for another six months, right? So he's, he's, what's he saying here? I appeal to you. So he's, he's saying, I want you to understand something. I'm appealing for something. I want something from you. What does he want? And then he says brothers. Now, that's brethren. That's, that's both men and women. That's not just men. That's, that's the idea of brethren. He says, I appeal to you, right? Bear with my word of exhortation. To bear with it. In other words, I've been exhorting and, and exalting who God is, who Christ is. That he is the, the perfect lamb of God. That he is the great high priest. That he is the perfect sacrifice. He's the lamb that was slain. Bear with that. In other words, get under that. Understand that. And I've also told you to live in light of that truth. So bear with that. Like Decide to get underneath that and, and take that on, that, that yoke, and, and live that way. I, I appeal to you to do this. He's, he's saying, do this, right? Do this. Think this way. Live this way. I'm exhorting you to do this. And so do it. Bear with me. I appeal to you. In verse 23, he goes on there and he says, you should know that our brother Timothy, now it gets real personal, that our brother Timothy has been released. Obviously, we assume here that Timothy's been in prison, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Now, many people think that this is one reason why, and there's many places here, where that maybe the Apostle Paul is the author here of Hebrews. Now, other people knew Timothy. It wasn't just Paul, but it is possible. There's other places that would lead us to believe maybe it was Paul, but we don't know. We don't know for sure, right? And so he's just telling them that there's a, there's a personal thing here. All of a sudden, this has become personal. When, when, you know, the first several chapters of the book, we're reading about um, the Old Testament and, the, and all of these, and it doesn't feel personal. Now it's reminding us that he's writing to, to real people that he knows, that he cares about, that are in a small church of some sort, probably in some body of believers. They're Hebrews that have come to know Christ, and, and there's relationships here. And you know that our brother Timothy, who has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Right? And then he closes out the letter. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. And he closes. Another reason why some people think that this is Paul is grace be with all of you. Paul was all about, in, the, in his letters, um, grace be with you. A lot of times he starts his letters talking about God's grace. But I would direct you to that, that last verse, 25. Grace be with all of you. If there is one thing that I could wish for all of you, 
is that God's grace would be for all of you. I mean, isn't that what we need? We need God's grace. More than anything else, we need God's grace. We need mercy and forgiveness. We need the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. That is God's grace. It's all wrapped in God's grace. It is, it is what grace is. It is. It's his work. It's his work on the cross. It's his dying for us and redeeming us. It's grace. And so when he says here, grace be with all of you, that is what he is saying. He says, look, I wish all of you will experience the grace and the mercy of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what, as, as you're one of your pastors, that's what I want for all of you, that you will experience and come to know the beauties and the depths of God's incredible grace, right? And so that's, we're going to look at the prayer now, right? So now he closed out the letter, but we're going to jump back to verse 20 now because this is where we want to spend our time today. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, right? Now what we're going to look at here is is this prayer, these two verses. That was the first one, verse 20. We're going to look at some attributes of this prayer. What, how this prayer is, what is, it, what's it, what is it meant to do? What is it doing? What's, what's he praying for, right? Because, once again, I, I want to say that many times our prayers are focused very much on a horizontal level or, or a need level. God, this is what we need, this is what we need, or this is what I, I, I want, or I'm praying for other people. And don't get me wrong, those are good prayers. I'm not saying those aren't good prayers. But he is setting a, a standard of how to pray, and if you notice, what, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, book of Matthew, how does he start his prayer when he says, well, teach us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed thee your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth that is in, is in, is in heaven. Notice he didn't say, well, pray for each other. Ask God to do this for you. No, it's all about acknowledging the Lord. May your name be made great hollowed in me and in the world. May your will be done. That's what's important. Not, yes, I'll come with my needs at some point, but the most important thing, the most glorious thing, the most magnificent thing is that your name be proclaimed in all the earth. That's, what, that's what's important. And so much, we, as, as Christians, we, especially in the Western culture, we just turn it around because it's all about us half the time. It's, it becomes about us. It becomes about, the, the, and look, and I'm not saying that we don't have preferences in worship and, and styles and, and pastors, and, and that's fine. We can have those things. But we need to make sure that we are keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is that our time together is all about worshiping God, not, not being a consumer here when we gather. So we're going to look at, Several things, probably six, six or seven things here in this prayer that I want to try and draw out, to point out to you. The first one, what does he say? Right? Now may God, may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, right? So what's the first thing we see here? It affirms God to be a God of peace. The first statement he makes, now may the God of peace. Now why is that significant? Now put yourself back in the first century, put yourself back as a Hebrew. Think of your, the ancestors. Think of the tabernacle. Think of 
all the, the stories and the history that you've read in the, the Old Testament is the first thing you think of, oh, God is a God of peace. Okay, he destroyed all of the Egyptian armies when they were trying to cross the Red Sea. He left millions of people in the 40 years to die because of their disobedience. When they're Mount Sinai, it says, if you touch the mountain, you will surely die. You will die. Don't touch the mountain. The old tabernacle that we've looked at, what? Only the high priest could go in. There was a reverence that was there. In fact, if you touched certain things, you would die. And so for the Hebrew, there was a fear in the Old Testament. There was, no, there was, there was a, a right reverence, yes, but there was also this fear of that, that God could strike me down at any moment and it would be just and it would be right and, and, and that's healthy. I'm not saying that's not healthy. But what the author is now trying to say is that in the New Covenant, there's another beautiful attribute that we want to make sure that we understand about who God is, and that is he is a God of peace. He's come to make peace. He's come so that we can have peace. We see this in a couple different places. I just want to, I could take you many places. We're just going to stay kind of fixed here to uh, the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. He says, um, now you remember, he's writing to, to the Gentiles here. Um, but there's also some Jews probably that were in the synagogue um, that, that he was also, so that's both mixed of Jews and Gentiles. And so they're coming from kind of two different backgrounds, right? And in verse 14, it says, for he himself is our peace. Now, who's he? Paul is saying Christ. He himself is our peace. He's the, he's the thing that's going to give us peace. He's the things where we find peace. We find peace in Christ. I mean, he's this, the, the object of our peace, right? He is it. That's kind of what he's trying to say. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's saying, look, when Christ came and died and, and took on flesh and died, everybody is welcome to the altar. Everybody's welcome to the throne through Christ. He, there, there's no more Jews, you're it, and Gentiles, you're not. It's not one or the other. It's everywhere. He's broken that down in his flesh by dying and saying, now anyone can come if you come through me, if you come through Christ. So we see here that he's come to make peace, right? To make peace between peoples, to make us all one, right? Now, I'm not saying that God is giving that peace to everyone, right? We're going to see that here in a minute. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, just a few verses later. It says, And he came and preached peace to all who are far off and peace to those who were near. Okay, so there's people far off and those who are near. Who are the far off people? The Gentiles. They were far off. They weren't near. They weren't, they weren't part of God's people. Those are the people that were near, the Jews, the Hebrews. He's bringing peace, right? But the gospel now is being preached. Christ is bringing the gospel, the good news, to everyone. He's bringing it. It doesn't mean that he's giving it to everyone, right? He's bringing peace. He's preaching peace. And that's the important thing to see here, right? That God is a God of peace, but that doesn't mean that there will not be justice and that his wrath won't be satisfied or won't be taken out on those who rebel against him. But peace is now possible. God has made it possible through Christ. Right? He goes on here in verse 9. And Paul says, 
he's now saying, if you've known me and you've done these things and you've seen these things in me, right? He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We looked at that last week. Once again, he's just saying, God wants to have peace with you. We're going to look at this more over the Christmas celebration, probably in an Advent thing, but we need peace with God. As, as people, that, people that don't have a relationship with Christ have not been born again, there is not peace with God. There is a, is a, is a wrath, God's a just wrath being stored up for that judgment. That's why the gospel is so important to be preached. That's why it's so important for you to share the gospels as the church, as the saints, to, to be sharing the gospel with your children, with your spouses, to be, to be sharing it with your neighbor, your co- co-workers, to be praying for people. Why? Because if there's, a, there's a real consequence for not entering into a peace with God. God is peace. He, he wants peace with us. He's made peace possible through Christ, but only for those who come to know him and are found in him. And so the first thing that his author is reminding them is that God is a God of peace. All right, what's the second thing we see in the prayer? It declares God's power over death. It declares God's power over death. So once again, we see that he's not praying for them per se. He's, he's reminding them as he's praying for them of who God is. And now he's going to share a very important Um, truth in his prayer that he wants them to be remembered, right? The centrality of the gospel is his prayer here, right? It declares that God's power has power over death. We go on here in the verse. This is, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, God the Father, brought back to life God the Son. He has power over death. The author wants them to know that. He's reminding them of that truth. Because see, all the high priests before them died and they didn't come back. All the animal sacrifices died. None of the animals came back. He's saying, this high priest is different. I've been telling you early in my letter about who he is and what he's done and he's a great high priest and it's eternal, right? He has power over death. And that changes everything for us. And for them, obviously. I love it how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6, verse 9. It says, For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. There's other places in Scripture where it says, If Christ is not raised from the dead, our, our faith is in vain. It's, it's all about the resurrection. Right? It's, it's all about the resurrection. If he dies for our sins, but he's not resurrected... If he has no power over death, then our fate is sealed. We will spend eternity in the grave. But if God has power over death, then our life has hope. There is hope for us. So here Paul says there is death has no longer dominion over him. Go all the way to the end, and we see in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Here we see. Um, John in his, has a vision, and early here in the book of Revelation where he's writing, the, one of the first things that, that God shows him in this revelation is Jesus. And notice what it is. So we're only 17 verses into the book of Revelation. And John says this, When I saw him, meaning Jesus, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What is the first thing he wants John to know? I mean, there's all this going to be this, the rest of Revelation that we get all excited about and, and all these theories about what's going to happen. The first and most important thing that he wants John to remember, that he wants John to commit and say, this you need to know. I died, but now I'm alive and I will live forevermore, John, and it's okay. Do not be afraid. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Rejoice always, I say again, rejoice. Be anxious for nothing. Let that be the foundation of your faith. Because suffering is going to come. In Revelation, things are going to come. Right? Whatever you view, however you view Revelation, things are going to come. Things, hardships are going to come in the world. And they're here. Many of those things are here now. We have great hardships around the world. Some of us deal with them. Some of us not so much. But there's hardships all around the world. And the main thing I think that he's wanting to do, and I think the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to his readers, is that God has power over death. So rejoice. I've told you all these things, but if I could just summarize all of this, the author's kind of saying in my prayer, he is a God of peace, he has power over death, right? If you don't take anything else away from the entire letter that I just wrote you, know those things. Know those things. That's why in the Gospel of John, when Jesus has been asked to come to see Mary and Martha and and, and their, their brother, Lazarus, Lazarus is sick and dying. You, many of you know this, this story, this piece of history. And, and, and they, they're all very close with Jesus. And, and they send to him. And, and he delays. He doesn't come. And he's doing that for, on purpose. And, and so it ends up Lazarus dies. And he's in the, in the tomb for like three, four days. And, and Jesus shows up. And Mary and Martha, obviously heartbroken, um, that their, their brother has died and, and they wish that Jesus would have been there and, and they kind of say, you know, Lord, if you'd have been here, you know, he wouldn't have died. And, and, and I don't think they're mad at him here. I think they're just saying, look, if you'd have been here, you, you, we know you, you have, you're a man of God. You could have done something, right? And because Jesus has power over death and he knows that he will live forever, what is he able to say to Martha here in this conversation? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The only way that Jesus can make that statement and issue that comfort to her is that he has power over death. He knows that he hasn't died yet in the flesh, but he knows what's going to happen. He's reminding her, he's encouraging her, Martha, you don't understand it yet, but I am the resurrection. I will live eternally, and so your brother will live forever, and you will live forever. And so then how does he demonstrate that truth? He walks up and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he brings Lazarus back from the dead, sealing what he's just said is true, right? It's evidence of that truth. So we see not only that his prayer affirms God to be a God of peace, but it declares that God has power over death. Okay, what's the third thing it shows us? It shows his great love and our great need. It shows his great love. Whose great love? God's great love. The Father's great love. 
This, this, this prayer is not only reminding them that, that God is a God of peace and he has power over death, but it's reminding them that God loves them and cares for them. Right? Because that's what they need to know. Because in the Old Testament, once again, they have this mindset of, of, of a law, of, of the law, and, and of death, and of disobedience, and you die, and all of these things. And now he's reminding them, he says, no, it shows his great love, and you have a great need, or we have a great need. So where do we see that? Well, if we just continue to read there, it says, the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. And many of us would just say, oh yeah, Jesus was our shepherd. Now, but now think about this for a second. Once again, you've got to go back in the mindset of the early church, the Hebrews here. He's using shepherd and sheep intentionally. Why? Because they understood that relationship of shepherd and sheep. They understood that whole picture of what that, what that meant. Why? Because sheep were defenseless. I don't know if you've ever raised sheep. And I, I've not. I've been around some sheep. I've heard many people that have raised sheep. They are defenseless. They can't defend themselves. Um, I've, I've even heard, and, and Mandy, you could probably tell me, any, if they fall over, they can't hardly get back up. Um, and so they're just defenseless. And so when an animal comes or predator comes, they're pretty much toast, right? That's, that's why we see in Scripture that you don't wander away from the flock because there's safety in the flock. Because why? Because there's a shepherd over the flock that protects the flock. We see in in the Gospel of John where he talks about this and that Jesus is, is our shepherd and he protects and he compares of other shepherds and, and how he guards the sheep and watches over the sheep and the sheep know his voice and know his name and they follow him and, and he calls his sheep. And all of this is a picture of this. This idea that they understand that he's saying we're sheep. <laughs> right? We're sheep. That means we are defenseless. That means saying we, we need someone to watch over our souls. I said last week that's why God has appointed pastors and elders to watch over the flock because we're sheep, right? We need, we need protection. And, and what, what he's saying here in his prayer is that I want you to be reminded that, that God is, that, that you have a need and, and that God is loving and caring and he's a shepherd. He will protect you and watch over you. He will guide you. He will, he will be willing to defend against all enemies to protect you. And I think they understand that imagery that he's reminding them of here. Just one verse from John chapter 10, the Gospel of John 10 verse 11, it says, Jesus I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So here Jesus is not only saying, and when he's speaking to them here in the Gospel of John, but he's saying, look, not only am I willing to die for you, for sheep, I'm willing to die. I'll put my life on the line and die for you. That's how precious we are. And so we think about that. So here when the author in his prayer is saying that he's brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, now he's reminding us who he is, the great shepherd of the sheep. He's over us, right? He's not a great high priest over us, one that's... that's Dishing out the law and killing animals. No, this, this is a shepherd that's going to guide us and love us and care for us. And that's what he's reminding here to the early church that he's writing to. All right, what else do we see? The prayer reminds us of God's love and sacrificial promise. Right? So we see that he has a great love, but now he has a sacrificial promise. If we finish out verse 20 there, it says, By the blood of the eternal covenant. So how does this God of peace 
that he's raised Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. How does he do all this? By the blood of the eternal covenant. Right? So this, that Jesus has come and he's taken on human flesh and he's died, he's shed his blood so that his, he could be the perfect sacrificial lamb. No longer is there a need for any other animal. And he also takes the role of great high priest. And so it reminds us of his sacrificial promise. It's eternal. It's, it's not temporary. It's, it's, not, it's not for just a short time. It's, 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 it's not temporary. It's forever. And he sealed it with his death, with the shedding of his blood. I was, when I was sharing with this individual yesterday when I was talking on the phone, and, and, and this is not somebody that I'm, I'm close with at all, but they called, and, and honestly, by God's grace, I think providentially, it was to help me kind of think through this passage a little bit, and we talked for about a little over 30 minutes, and I was just reminding them, and I said, you know, Jesus suffered for us. I, I, he died for us. He died for the sheep. You, you've made a profession of faith. You are his, right? Yes, well, this is what he's done. And because he's done that, can you trust him? Well, I see that. So, so no matter what you're going to face in the future, no matter what may come, he's promised you, right, that, that he has power over death. Yes. He, he's demonstrated his great love for you. Yes. He's made it eternal. So not only are you going to get something, but it's going to be eternal. His love is going to last forever. And he has sealed it by dying for you. Do you trust that? Well, yes. I said, then what do you got to worry about? That doesn't mean we won't pray for your need. But that's where you want to have comfort. That's where you want to have rest. That's what you want to meditate on. Because everything else pales in comparison to that. And so that is what he's reminding them here of their, his sacrificial promise. All right, let's look at the next verse, verse 21, second part of the prayer. It goes on there, to equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I just want to remind you again, who's this about? It's not about us. The prayer is not about us. We're in, we're in it. In other words, he's talking about, he's going to equip us. That's going to be good, right? He's going to give us gifts, abilities, everything good. Why? So that we may do our own will, so that we may have a Perfect life the way we want it. No, it's to do his will. His gifts have been given. Every good gift has been given for his will, for that we will do his will. Not, not for our own glorification, not for our own edification, for his. Now, by God's grace, when we live that way, there's no better place, and, and we have joy unspeakable when we live that way. But it's getting them in the right order, Right? Our, our desire is to please him and to serve him and to glorify him. And when we do that, yes, we will experience a peace and a joy that transcends all understanding, what Paul says. But here, this idea of he's equipping us. And so I want to ask you a question. God has given you gifts and abilities and talents. He's equipped you. What are you doing with them? Are you using them for yourself, solely? Are you using them to make more money so that you can have more things? Are you using them so you can have a status or using them, whatever, right? Or are you using them for his glory, for his will? And you say, well, I don't know what his will is for my life. Read the Bible. 
His will is that you will obey. His will is that you will honor him in all your decisions, that you will seek after him. You say, well, is it my will that I marry this person or that person? Honestly, my opinion on this particular thing is that his will is not that you marry this person or that person. It's that you marry another believer and that you live your life rightly before him no matter who you marry. You are free to marry whoever you want, but the will is that you will do it in a godly manner, in a godly way. That's what the will of God is. The will is that you will obey, that, that you'll do these things, you'll seek after him, right? No matter what he gives you, that you'll be content in all things, and that you will understand that if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you can praise him always. Just, I've shared this, and I'm just going to share just a, a minuscule piece of this. The night before my father died, I was standing in my, my kitchen with my dad. I was 18 years old, and we were having this conversation, and he, obviously he didn't know he was going to have a heart attack in a few hours and, and die, um, but... He's standing there, and we we're talking about all sorts of things. It was a great conversation, best one I've ever had with me in my life, and I was close with him. He says, Raleigh, I need to let you know something. He said, um, he said, if I could do one thing different with my life, I would use my abilities for God. Actually, his quote was, I would sell Jesus. Because he was a sales guy. He was a businessman. He was big in sales. And he says, I've always used my, my gifts for myself. And and he got it. At the, he didn't know it, but it was the last hours of his life. And the thing that he came to the conclusion was is that God had given him gifts and he had squandered them. That he'd only used them for himself. So what is the author saying? God has given you gifts to do his will. Now, does it mean that you, you can't use your gifts as you long and you're serving him and that, that you can't have a great life and you can't have things? That's not what I'm saying. But is, is, the, is the thrust of your life this idea that what you're doing is going to be for his glory or is it for our own? See, this is why it's important as he's, as he's closing out this, this letter to them, he's reminding them some essential, tremendous truths that he wants them to hold on to. And he's praying these things over them. Father, that they will remember these things. He goes on there. says, that is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So he's just basically expounding upon that and saying, his will is that he's going to work in us to do what he wants, and it's going to be pleasing in his sight. Our obedience, and when we follow his will, is going to be pleasing to him. Because why? Because he is worthy of our obedience. All right, so we've seen that God is a God of peace. It affirms that he's declared that he has power over death. He's demonstrated his great love and our need. He reminds us of God's sacrificial promise. And the next thing, it claims Christ as the only way. His prayer, very, very subtly, very um, simply, declares that Christ is the only way. Why, why do I say that? Well, let's read that. Right? Equip you in every good, with every good so everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. It's a little phrase right there in the middle. It's, 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 not, it's not through anyone else. All these things, the will of God, the equipping of God, or the equipping from God is all going to be through Christ, right? All this is going to happen. Christ is the one that came. He's the one that's died. He's the one that's the shepherd. He's the one that made the eternal covenant possible. All of this is right here at the end, is all through Jesus. Not through Muhammad, not through Buddha, not through other teachings, worldly beliefs, not through human constructs, not through human wisdom, 
None of that is possible. It is only possible through Jesus Christ. Right? It claims Christ as the only way. Subtly. You may say, well, yeah, that doesn't really. No, it's through, it's through Christ. He, he doesn't have to explain it all. He's already been explaining it for 12 chapters, that he is the one. And now he's just saying in his prayer, reminding them that this is true. It's only through him. We see here in Acts chapter 4, this is when the, their, their first missionary journey and, and their, um, their, their Peter and John have been, I think, been put in prison. At least they've been been kind of told not to preach the gospel and, and I think put in prison for a day or two and, and they get released and, and Peter in his, his boldness um, is speaking to the elders of, of, the, you know, of the Jewish elders and some of the, the leaders and, and what does he say to them in verse chapter 4 verse 12 it says and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Peter just states it clearly. There's no other way that people can be saved unless it's not through Jesus. That's it. There's no other way. Obviously, I could take you to John 14, 6, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? And so what do we see here? Is that the prayer claims, makes the claim, and it's obviously the truth, that Jesus is the only way. All right. Last one. Last thing we see here in the prayer. It reveals God's ultimate purpose. It reveals God's ultimate purpose. So the last thing that he says in his prayer before he says amen, right, is going to reveal his ultimate purpose. What is his ultimate purpose? To whom be the glory forever and ever, right? So Christ is going to receive glory. The Father is going to receive glory forever and ever. Why? Because this is what God has done. This is what he's done for us. He is a God of peace. He has died for us. He has become our great shepherd. He loves us. And all those things, if we are reminded of those things, are going to turn our hearts towards him. We're going to worship him, and we're going to love him, and it's going to bring him glory. Because why? Because the big idea is it's all about God. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Read that again. Ascribe to the Lord, give to the Lord the glory that is due his name. It is due. Worship the Lord in, in the splendor of holiness. He is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. Our life is a gift. Every day is a gift that we can demonstrate and show the glory of God in how we live. That's why we're called witnesses. We're a witness to the king. We're not a witness to ourselves. We're a witness to his love and his purposes and his perfect love for us. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah in verse 43, verse 7 says it this way. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's the foundational statement that God is basically just saying through Isaiah. I've done all this for my, I've, I've formed you, I've made you. I've done it all. I've called people for my purposes, and I've done it all for my glory. And I'll tell you what, we just have to submit to that truth. And for many of us, we don't want to, we don't want to submit that truth. I have many, many people in my life that just that would just not sit well with them, that this is all about God and all about what he's doing, and we are to yield to all of that. And so with, with all of this, what, what is that? What is, what is our right response 
If, if this is true, if the author now is, has said, this is who Jesus is, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the angels, he's our great high priest, he's the perfect sacrificial lamb, and, and we are to live this way, and God has done all these things for us, he's reminded us in the prayer here of all of this, his holiness, that he's given us eternal life, all of that, we can, we can praise him no matter what, we can rejoice always because our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What's the right response to that? There's only one right response. It's worship. It's worship. Like, what does that mean, worship? It means obedience. It means orienting your life to his will. It, it, it means dying to yourself. It means loving one another and sharing the gospel. It means reminding people of truth. It, 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 means, it means sitting under God's teaching. It, it means being in the body of Christ. It's, it's all acts of worship. It is not just when we sing together. That is a great time for worship. But today, we're going to worship in a way that God has instructed us to worship. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, today as we remember together what you've done for us through sending your Son to live a sinless life, but yet taking on sin, becoming sin for us. And then Jesus willingly going to the cross to suffer and to die. to make it right with you, to make us right with you if we are in Christ. Father, it's through that act that Jesus made peace for us with you. It is in that act we see days later that he will be resurrected from the dead and we'll see that he has power over death. You will send your Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to be our comforter to be our shepherd and guide us and convict us of sin and to lead us. And Father, all of it has been done for your glory. And so, Father, we come and we submit to you this day. We proclaim you King and Lord, Savior. Lord, we desperately come in need Lord, I pray that we will meditate on these truths today that, that the author here in Hebrews is reminding us of in his prayer. That we can take rest and shelter in those promises. And that when we understand that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we will be able to rejoice and rejoice always and be anxious for nothing. And that that truth will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the church, the fellowship that we have with one another, that we are here to encourage one another and remind each other of these truths, lest we drift away, as the writer in Hebrews has been telling us. So Lord, as we go from this place, as we've concluded our study here in the book of Hebrews, May we leave changed. May we leave more aware of who you are and what you've done. 
And may those things change how we live. And all of it, Father, our knowledge, the way we live, may all of it be done in such a way that seeks to honor your will and to bring you glory. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.